Good morning to those joining us from Europe and hello to our viewers joining from other time zones. My name is Vlad Maximov. I am a global Europe and regional policy reporter here at Euractiv and I have the pleasure to welcome you to this Euractiv debate between key actors about the present and future of cohesion policy. Our event today is part of Euractiv's project called Let's Meet Cohesion Policy, a journey through regions, challenges and success stories co-financed by the European Commission's Department for Regional and Urban Policy, DG Regia. Cohesion, the EU's flagship policy, is aimed at reducing territorial, economic, and social disparities between different places in Europe. This 330 billion investment package, making up about a third of the new EU budget, will focus on bringing about a smarter, greener, and more connected Europe closer to its citizens by 2027. Now, that's a tall order in its own right, complicated by the fact that the funds will be implemented simultaneously with the EU's 750 billion recovery package. This is likely to prove a challenge, as the EU's cohesion ministers admitted last month in Lisbon. The recovery and resilience mechanism, the centerpiece of the recovery package, will disburse about 300 billion uh, euros in grants alone to be spent by 2026. At the same time, EU countries are also busy programming cohesion funds, which only need to be spent by 2029, leading to what critics fear will be a prioritization of recovery fund uh, spending and empty cohesion project pipelines. This is in a period when spending of structural funds by member states has already considerably slowed down compared to the, with the previous investment period. Uh, comparing the last years of programming cycles between the budgetary periods, EU countries had by the end of last year spent 56% of the funds versus 64 in 2013. Meanwhile, the new cohesion policy has increased climate spending targets to 30% in its biggest funds. All this at a time when critical voices across Europe point to the misuse of the funds in so-called cohesion countries, the main beneficiaries of the regional policy. They argue that instead of contributing to real change, taxpayer money goes into the pockets of corrupt political elites. Now, on the flip side, the beneficiaries of cohesion continue to complain about administrative burden. So how can we increase the efficiency of the policy and fund absorption while reining in corruption and show the impact of cohesion to citizens. As you can see, we have a packed agenda today, but we will dive in just uh, in a second. And now I'll go th quickly through the housekeeping rules. You can write your questions in the Q&A section at the bottom of the chat box, uh, chat box on your right, which should appear right about now. Um, when sending your questions, please identify yourself, keep your questions short and concise, and indicate to which panelists you're addressing the question. We also encourage tweeting, of course, so join the online discussion on Twitter using the hashtag EADebates. So without further ado, let me introduce our speakers who will give their short opening statements before we'll turn to our panel discussion. With us today, we have Norman Poppins, Deputy Director General for Implementation at the European Commission's DG Radio, MAP Karina Kretsu, Member of the European Parliament's Committee uh, on Regional Development and former European Commissioner for Regional Policy, Claire Roumet, the Director of Energy Studies at the European Association of Local Authorities in Energy Transition, Stefan Ka, Senior Knowledge Exchange and Research Fellow at the European Policies Research uh, uh, Center, which is a European research institute in comparative studies of regional development policies. And last but certainly not least, Claudio Truzzi, uh, Coordinator of ICD.Brussels, a project co-funded by the European Regional Development Fund, which aims to bring together researchers and industry to strengthen tech innovation in the Belgian capital. As you can see, we have a wide range of panelists with a wealth of experience and expertise. 
so I, I'm sure that this will be a very interesting discussion today. And I will now turn to each of our panelists for a short opening remark before diving headfirst into today's discussion. Norman, the floor is yours. Thank you, Vlad, and I'm very happy to be part of this panel debate. Very happy to see my ex-boss uh, or ex-commissioner, Kretsu. And um, honestly, what you say is true. I mean, cohesion policy is a very important policy, and it's a very important also EU instrument to achieve the goals that we set up at the EU level. If you look at the history of our policy, I think today we can say that this policy is a modern EU policy. It still keeps channeling investment from EU budget to all places in Europe. And we can say that everyone in Europe has a chance to benefit from the cohesion policy funding all member states, all regions, all territories. It differentiates between the different level of development of different regions. So the less developed regions receive more funding and so on. And it also focuses on the field of interventions where there is a value added. So we have streamlined our policy to make sure that we help everyone in Europe uh, to to be part of the EU level um, goals and deals, particularly, of course, I'm talking about the EU green and digital transition. And it's not because we say so, it's because it's a real necessity. It's necessary to make sure that nobody is left behind into this absolutely necessary green and digital transition, which we all have to go through. I don't think we really have a choice on that. So we are working now with all the regions, with all the member states and everyone to set up a new period of cohesion policy programs. Uh, we have shown that the, our policy uh, can respond very quickly to different crisis situations and Corona crisis is, is a case where I think we can show that we were able to reprogram, to reshift the funding to the needs which were um, urgent, uh, to de-block, uh, to deal with the crisis effects and, and regain the path of economic development. And I think in that context, uh, our policy will stay and will remain one of the key investment policies of EU with, of course, what you say, um, the further work on simplification, uh, which we started with our Commissioner Corina Kretsu, our Commissioner Ferreira is absolutely committed to look further into the simplification of our policy. We have good regulatory framework and uh, we will keep working with all of you. The partnership for us is key and this is why I'm very happy to be part of today's debate. Thanks a lot. Normans. Uh, Corina creates a Corina, if I may, the floor is yours. How, how do you see Normans's comments? First of all, I think it's a very important event today because we are talking about cohesion policy. And uh, as you know, being Commissioner for Regional Policy, I've seen uh, uh, how this cohesion policy is changing the life for the better of the millions of people. I saw uh, that all the regions are integrated. For instance, if you invest in a poor region in Bulgaria, uh, they are beneficial uh, in, uh, in um, uh, economy everywhere in Europe, being in Denmark or uh, uh, Germany or Italy or any other member states uh, and vice versa. So I really think that uh, cohesion policy, it's a very essence of uh, European solidarity. Unfortunately, in the last uh, period, we are not talking so much about this with this coronavirus. As you said in the beginning, uh, member states, uh, they have three challenges uh, ahead. 
first of all, to close in a very good condition 2014-2020 programming period, uh, which are very much delayed. Uh, they still could spend money until 2023 and um, to uh, end the negotiation for 2021-2027, which negotiations which, which are also uh, delayed. Uh, the European Parliament, um, I am on the side of the European Parliament now, will, uh, will uh, vote on the 23rd of June the package uh, and, and the budget for cohesion uh, policy for all the countries. And at the end of the June will be in the European Journal. So in um, uh, um, uh, officially, they, all the member states could spend uh, start spending this money for the 1st of July. But in reality, uh, is no member state that uh, um, ended operational programs, as far as I know myself. Maybe my, maybe I'm not uh, well informed, but uh, it will be uh, a big delay also in uh, implementing 2021-2027. And uh, in parallel, as you said, simultaneous, uh, all the countries are waiting now for... Uh, how the Commission, European Commission, will assess the resilience and recovery plan, which uh, is very important. So uh, we are in, in a way, how to say, in a luxury situation, having a lot of amounts of money, but not project pipelines according with the needs of the people. And uh, I think uh, we as Europeans and all the countries should not miss this uh, unique chance they have now to develop, to make reforms, and to improve the life of the people. Thank you so much. Uh, now moving on to Claire, um, how, do you, how do you see that? How do you see the present and the near future of cohesion policy? God, I would like to know that. And actually, I'm not sure I have the answer to the ne next future. But um, first, what I want to say is that indeed, really, uh, the um, the current cohesion policy has changed life uh, for years. It has been really something that, which is a one of the best success of the EU. And for cities, uh, the cohesion policy also worked very well. And uh, many of the programs that are dealt with by DG Regio are of tremendous importance for cities' transformation. So I think this is something that is, it has been a success, but it's true that now we have a complete um, new setting and it's, it's really also maybe time to rethink what we wanted from the cohesion policy. The cohesion policy has been thought to be the program to make sure that all regions will get uh, uh, developed and that the less developed regions would basically uh, come to the level of uh, metropolitan areas that are very successful. But today, what, what does it mean to successful? I mean, the, the best, biggest metropolitan area that have been uh, built on uh, their uh, own development on high tourism, uh, super strong innovation in such a, in, in some uh, sector that are very fossil uh, demanding. And now those metropolitan area will be the one left behind. And maybe indeed a smaller city like Bistrița in the border of Moldavia in Romania is the place to be because it's the best uh, place in terms of uh, resiliency, in terms of uh, food, energy, water supply. And that will be, or that is currently 
much more important and much more preeminent as challenges uh, than it was before. So I think that we also need to completely rethink first, what do we mean by less developed regions? And maybe we have to learn a lot more from those places that we have considered and that were less developed uh, in, in, in the past and that we can maybe learn from their own models for other areas that we have thought that they were really extremely well developed but that will maybe shrink now. We see a complete uh, reshuffling of the population, of the priorities, uh, that, that I think we have really, uh, we are only at the very beginning of big, big changes in terms of spatial and regional development. So that will need to be reflected. Now, the, the, the main message we wanted to put is that there is a lot of potential in the recovery fund. There is a lot of potential in the cohesion policy. And uh, unfortunately, there is never time to think. And what local authorities, regional authorities would need now is just to stop being able to think, to think exactly what would be their strategy. How do they land in 2030 if they want to be indeed on track for the climate uh, uh, agenda? And, and this needs to just, we need to, to take the time to think. During one year, we have paid uh, enterprise to, um, to just do nothing. I mean, because to wait, to survive, because the COVID, just uh, completely uh, scratch their activity. We also need to uh, allow the public authorities to have this time to just do nothing else than thinking. And otherwise, we will not end to have. We will never have good plans. And I think it, it, that we that is exactly what we need in terms of absorption rate, in terms of everything. We need to to make to say stop. We just now we just think. Well, thank you. Thank you, Claire, for those points. And uh, Stefan, uh, you've been researching cohesion policy for a long time. H how do you see this? Claire mentioned that, you know, maybe we should rethink, uh, rethink how we think about uh, less developed regions. Uh, what's your view of that? Yes, thank you. Um, I think what I wanted to say now has changed after I heard to I listened to your statements and I think Vlad you you already uh, mentioned so many things that I wanted to say now that's all gone but I think uh, I'd like to uh, follow up on what uh, Claire said about uh, how to measure uh, development and I think that's a very important issue and I think there's something we've been looking into and we've been trying to come up with different concepts but it's very difficult but one aspect and I'm quite happy that we have people here representing uh, cities is in my view cohesion policy needs to find itself or redefine itself as a territorial policy and, and they, we have uh, uh, the tools in place. We have the territorial dimension, we have things uh, that have been introduced, integrated territorial inter investments, CLLD. So there's the opportunity to make use of these tools and I think this is something very useful in terms of this multi-level governance aspect of cohesion policy that I think should be emphasized. And it increases the visibility to the citizens because in the end cohesion policy is there uh, for the citizens of Europe. And the second point I think is has also been touched on for me is important that we need to see that cohesion policy is a policy for all, for the entire uh, Europe. And the contexts are so diverse. And I think there needs to be uh, an element for uh, that allows this diversity to uh, in implementation systems also to, to, to be expressed. Uh, the importance of cohesion policy is so uh, different in different countries. Um, in some countries, it's the driving development policy by far. This is the key.
Thank you, thank you, Stefan. And now, Claudio, for your opening statement. Sure, thanks, Vlada, for inviting me. And I think the, the value I can bring here is really uh, a bottom-up information to the strategy. As you said, I've been running the uh, project uh, ICT.Brussels for five years now. I've been in touch with a lot of companies with the economic tissue of the region here. So uh, what I would like to bring to the table uh, is uh, uh, developing a little bit more on uh, one point that Stefan just made. It is difficult to measure how to measure things, how to measure complex concepts like development. And uh, what I wanted to say and to add is uh, that it is important how we measure things because people tend to change their behavior according to the way they are measured. So if you develop indicators that only measure how active I am, I will make sure that I will be very active and report uh, very strong KPI to you, but how does that relate to the actual outcome? How does that relate to the actual impact of what the project is supposed to do? We don't know, we cannot measure. So the point I'm gonna make is uh, we should uh, uh, treat KPIs, indicators and measurement at large um, as a, as a, as a, in a professional way, as a, as a specific science, we really have to stop and think, like Claire's point was made, on how exactly we measure things. And second, we should probably stop trying to measure every single second of activity of the people. So these are the two points that I want to make, and maybe I can uh, expand a little bit further on during the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Claudio. And I think that really set up a wide range of topics to be discussed today, so let's dive in. Normans, I'll turn to you first to set the scene a little bit for our discussion, to give a kind of overall picture where cohesion policy is at the moment. The agreement on the EU's long-term budget came very late this time, pushing back the adoption of the cohesion package as well. Is this going to delay cohesion projects? Is this a problem? Well, thank you. Um, I, I loved what Claire said, actually. Uh, we need to think a little bit. And I don't think it's at, at, at all a problem if we are slightly delayed on setting up the new programming period, because for the moment, like all of you say, we are in a survival mode. We have just reprogrammed the 23 billion out under the 1420 period, and we are completing the reprogramming of the React EU instrument, which is part of a next generation EU, but based on the current cohesion policy programs. So this money is being disbursed as we speak to help to fight the effects of the crisis, but also to make a bridge on this more permanent development needs, which is linked to green and digital transition. So we are there, and uh, as also the implementation of 1420 is still ongoing until 23, as our ex-commissioner said, we are still very well placed in terms of receiving funding for the needs of the crisis and re regaining back to the development path. That it's, it's true that RRF is coming in, and that is, again, another important fund which will contribute to the exit from the crisis and going back to the development path for the next two, three years. So there, I think we are looking at our programs as a more long-term instrument, which will stay there for another seven years. So really, we are discussing with our counterparts in member states and regions this green and digital transition, investment into the social integration, into different needs of education, healthcare, 
healthcare, labor market, SMEs, research, innovation, also transport and environment in a longer term. And this is, I think, what is very important. This is why taking a little bit of time this year, for me, it's completely justified and actually very good because we will arrive at the quality programs which will stay there and continue the work that we are doing in, in React, with React EU and also with RRF to be there for, for the years to come um, with endless stream and longer. It is very important to, to, to say, I think for me, that we are there and uh, one of the speakers just said, you need to bring back more territorial. We are trying to redefine our policy. And in a new period, we, we, we did a simplification. We merged 11 thematic objectives into five policy objectives. But in fact, we merged 11 into four and the fifth is a new one. We are bringing back the territorial policy objective, which means that we can channel investment through the territorial strategies and prioritize accordingly, according to the needs of a real, real territories, uh, be it at urban, rural, uh, and and we can do it uh, as long as you um, respect the principles of functional cooperation area and bottom-up approaches, and you have the minimum requirements met. But we thematic windows, which is uh, energy, environment, transport, SMEs, research and innovation, where again we can use the territorial instruments. My last point is on urban. We, it's true, we work a lot with urban areas, but you know that in Europe the, there were two metropolitan areas in the global understanding, London and Paris, London left. So the rest are small cities. I exaggerate, of course. What we try to achieve is particularly you will see that through the new vision for the long-term vision of for rural areas. We are finally trying to break this ice rural versus urban. It has to stop. We need to see urban and rural, rural areas in conjunction, in cooperation. They form functional areas within the European Union. And we have to finally invest under this concept of functional area. And that, I think, is the only way forward. And this is what we have been working on and, again, proposing through different programs under cohesion policy. It's very well received by everyone. It's very well understood, but it's a challenge to put it in place because you do need all actors, all stakeholders, all levels of governance, governance working hand in hand. Um, and I, I don't think it's something that RRF can attempt at doing. This is our strength that we are well, there I and think we can actually I, do it. Th thank you. Those are <laughs> yes, apologies. But uh, I think you are making a very important point that we are in a historical moment and we need to think long and hard where we go next. Karina, even as you said, you've switched teams a little bit. As a European lawmaker, you have been closely involved in the cohesion's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Norman said, you know, that we, the response has been good and, uh, and now it's really time to think about longer term things. How do you see this? Do you think that the response was fast and effective enough? And how does this affect the current uh, thinking about cohesion policy? Of course, uh, of the beginning, um, we all uh, criticize uh, that the European Commission was a bit slow, but I think with this recovery plan, uh, it's a very important signal of European solidarity and having both recovery and cohesion uh, funds it's a big responsibility for the member states and for the Commission. What I am afraid is uh, that many European countries have put cohesion funds on hold until uh, they know whether the recovery plan uh, will be accepted uh, by the European uh, Commission. And as uh, you said here and Normal said and you said 
I think it's a matter of priorities and uh, finding co finding the complementarity, because you know very well the voices that uh, regarding bottlenecks and double uh, funding, it's a real concern. But uh, the two are mixed, uh, and to give you an example, if cohesion policy it's uh, it's building on one job, the recovery resilience plan should make these jobs uh, resilient. And moreover, when cohesion policy are connected, uh, oriented towards the less developed regions, the recovery plan is um, uh, uh, oriented towards sectors where most uh, where most had been most affected by the COVID crisis. And about urban, you know very well that as Commissioner for Regional Policy, I was a big fan of uh, giving uh, more money to the to the local authorities. I think they know best uh, where, how uh, to, to invest. Uh, there are still a lot of reluctance from the member states to give money directly to the local authorities, uh, especially in the very uh, centralized countries. Uh, until now, there is a um, 10% uh, uh, minimum that uh, member states should give uh, to the cities. I really think that it's a very important, uh, very important issue. And uh, uh, it is very clear that member states should uh, strengthen the administrative capacity. But I think we have here a lot of maturity, because if you think about the uh, European Union, the youngest member of European Union, Croatia, has still uh, eight years of experience, uh, Romania, Bulgaria, 10, 11 years. So I really think that we have to use uh, uh, much more communication between member states uh, and um, use good practices uh, to prove uh, uh, that have been proved to be very useful for the, for the countries. It's a real challenges. Uh, uh, there are real challenges with Tusa. 2014, 2020, 2021, 2027, and in the same time having five years for recovery and all the benchmarks that we have uh, in uh, in this recovery plan. But uh, I think, uh, as you said, that uh, that uh, not uh, countries and regions should uh, should uh, lose this chance. In terms of regional, uh, less developed regions, of course, we need to reanalyze all the uh, 300 uh, um, European regions, but I am very much afraid that, that sometimes member states do not invest properly in the less developed regions. It's a lot of um, uh, politics in, in this. Even the European Commission is um, pushing for um, uh, closing the gaps that we have between North and Hold South. Hold on just for a moment there, because you're making a very interesting point, and I think uh, Claire made a very similar point uh, earlier that, um, you know, Claire, you have your ear to the ground when it comes to local and regional authorities, and the former con commissioner was saying that we really should invest into the, their capacities as well. So learning from the coronavirus pandemic, you were saying that maybe we should reconsider what we think of as traditionally regions lagging behind? How do we do that? Well, I think we, we need to launch a wide conversation because the, the, we cannot leave that conversation to national uh, member states. That's for sure. That's what I have, I have, we, what we have seen everywhere. So first, to come back on uh, Cor Corina's uh, point, I think it's indeed, it's, uh, what I don't want to say is that there is no more less developed regions because there is really less developed regions that really needs help still. I mean, and it's extremely important that we do invest on, in on those regions. 
But in terms of uh, what does it mean less developed and what kind of actually new indicators or new model that we want to, to, to put forward and to invest in, what is very important is that we have a wide conversation about that. Because today it was clear that uh, indeed a, a, a city that is thriving is a city where there is a lot of green areas where you can have um, real... I mean, I think we don't manage to really um, envisage what would be the real challenge of, of the future uh, Some in, in the energy sector where we are. Uh, some uh, engineers, they tell us that indeed uh, it is quite possible to start uh, be like in California with a big cutoff in big cities and in big countries of, such as uh, uh, in the middle of summer, it's not always true that uh, or it's not sure that in Lyon in France we can provide as much as electricity as is needed for all the um, air conditioning that will be needed because today in Lyon for example there is more need of electricity during the summer than during the winter because of the heat waves and in, in France uh, the nuclear power plant cannot uh, provide the energy that is needed during those heat waves because there is not enough water in the river to cool down the plant. So this is one example, for example, of what, what we don't encompass yet into our indicators. We don't look at all those vulnerability points that we need to really work uh, and it, these are really rethinking the local wells. What I would like to say in addition to that is, uh, so what to do what is local wealth and to understand what is local wealth, it's conversation that needs to be held on each territory and that cannot be defined uh, globally or uh, at European uh, level. But what we have seen with the recovery plan is a very big, we are very, very concerned with the recovery plan because so far when we have uh, analyzed them through the scanning of uh, local and green um, challenges. It looks like uh, what is financed is, it, 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 it looks like member states are renationalized completely uh, the EU policy. So I was very proud of the fact that indeed the EU managed and the Commission really did an amazing job to just manage to find a solution and to propose recovery uh, funding uh, with such at, at such a speed and to react so positively to uh, the, the COVID crisis, but member states uh, have basically hijacked that, that beautiful potential new European uh, project uh, by putting it completely into their end. And now the recovery plans looks like uh, my daughter, when she was six years old, when she got money, she was spending everything on, on, on a day, like whatsoever, or on things that she would not never need. Now she's been a little bit grown up and she does spend much better. I think that you're making an extremely important point that chimes well with what Stefan was saying in his introduction that, you know, with the recovery money, it seems like we are nationalizing European spending. And Stefan, you've been, uh, you know, raising concern about the fact that regional policy seems to be losing the regions out of it. And this is happening with the uh, with this new influx of money. So how uh, and you've also studied, I know, the synergies between cohesion policy and other EU investment areas like research and innovation and agriculture. And you know that synergies do not easily develop automatically. So how do we make these things work together, really? 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's two aspects of this. One is, as you said, the territorial uh, uh, dimension or the territorial uh, character of cohesion policy, and then the synergies. But I would like to focus on the, on the territorial things because I think that there were a few uh, interesting points raised by by the other speakers. Um, and the cohesion policy as a territorial policy has lost this territorial element over the successive program periods, in my view. I mean, we, have, we all remember these maps with the micro-targeting, where it was very tricky because one municipality was eligible for some sort of funding and the next one wasn't. And it was all simplified and there was a good, uh, good motivation for this and it made sense. But now we're in a situation where, uh, other than the uh, less developed transition and more developed categories, uh, every member state can pretty much uh, put the money wherever they want to. So there's, this is a relatively limited uh, compulsory uh, territorial dimension to this. There is the urban dimension, which is increasingly being supported from going up from 5% for urban areas now to 8%, but there's no equivalent for rural areas. And we, what we did uh, about a year ago, which was quite interesting, is to look at what, how much money does actually go into rural areas in a study for the for the uh, EP actually, and. Uh, then we, came, we found some figures, but it was, uh, I think it's, you need to look behind those figures because when we then looked at what was actually invested in rural areas, looked at the intervention codes, then you saw uh, infrastructure and you saw transport infrastructure. And if you then look at a lot of this funding, which we didn't then do in detail because this wasn't part of the study, but then you wonder how much of this investment in rural areas is really uh, a high-speed rail connecting two agglomerations, you know? Or, or motorway. So I thought this is, this is something that you can, on the one hand, say, yes, it's a territorial policy, and also we invest in all kinds of uh, territories, but how much is really reaching uh, those areas and the less developed areas, which are mostly non-urban areas, and as we, we discussed about this, but always from a city perspective, how do we reach these, uh, um, yeah, the, the, this, this part of, the, of, of Europe? Um, I think that's very interesting, and now actually this is perfect uh, moment to ask Claudio, who's you know been on the ground implementing one of these projects, also in the Brussels area. So, um, also speaking from your own experience, how do you see the impact on the, the pandemic has had on cohesion policy, and how do we facilitate innovation in this sort of new reality that we are living? While uh, you know, as Stefan has been saying, there are concerns that we are losing the territorial dimension altogether. Yeah, thank you. Yes, very, very interesting point, and uh, also a lot of food for thoughts uh, from uh, from the previous speakers. So thanks for that. Um, yeah, there are two elements in there. The well, pandemic has disrupted everything. Innovation, development is a very difficult task. is a very difficult activity. I think Stefan was measured uh, was in um, uh, indicating how difficult it is to define a measurement for development. So basically. I don't say that everything stopped because that's not real, but everything was put down to the minimum common denominator possible in order to survive. And that's why, by the way, there have been a possibility to stand the spending to extend activities as long as they are justified. So there has been a big tsunami impact on everything. Now, we are recovering back to a new normality. We are not getting back to the older normal. It's a new normal. And this new normal requires, to me, two things. One is, and I bring it back on how you measure things, we have to learn at the policy and regulation level and objective statement level and also strategic level how we impact the operators on the ground according to how we are going to measure them. And that's one thing. Uh, we are not, we are using very simple measurement. Uh, it's activity measurement, 
how many companies have been uh, collaborating with you. We are using uh, um, performance measurement. How many have you reached the objectives? Yes, of course, maybe uh, my objectives were very low to start with. So I have reached the objective. I made sure to reach the objectives. Otherwise, I don't get the money. But how about more complicated um, uh, measurements? Like, how are you doing better than last year? How, how are you going to do better next year? Um, things that do involve differences and ratios are very difficult for us as human beings to grasp. But they reveal uh, uh, much more profound information as to what we can do next. So these are actionable uh, uh, measurements, actionable indicators, and we should try to steer a little bit more into that, number one. Number two, we should introduce new uh, measurement like resilience. How do we measure really resilience? You know, we now measure activity, we measure relevance, we measure uh, efficiency. We should start measuring resilience. Basically, it's equivalent to the stress test for banks. How can we stress test uh, an ERDF project. I think we should start discussing a bit uh, on that project, uh, on, on that concept as well. And um, and to finalize a little bit, uh, I like Stefan's point on the geographical angle at which you view things. But from my point of view, coming from many, many years of running a European project, I see actually that now there is this a strategic innovation context, a smart specialization strategies, who are actually helping enormously the operators like me to navigate and steer our way to really better measure the value that we add to the region, as opposed to 10, 20 years ago, where, okay, you were doing something, the next municipality was doing something else. What was the relevance of it all? Now it is easier to uh, understand the relevance of what we are doing. So we should go on and uh, better use the strategic innovation context, the, the smart innovation strategies. But I do agree involving this uh, uh, element of functional areas rather than keeping in our head the wall between urban and rural. Um, I, you mentioned a very important concept that very often uh, talked about uh, in the context of cohesion policy, smart specialization. Claire, I know, I know you have an opinion on that. Can, could you comment? Yes. Uh, so you, you hear me? Yes. Um, I'm not a big fan, to be honest. <laughs> I really much, I, I'm a much, um, I can really relate much more to uh, the concept of uh, functional area. Smart specialization has been a way to put a lot of competition. I mean, it can be used in different ways, but if it's uh, used to indeed uh, brand different cities around some very uh, specific um, targeted uh, um, added value that they would have because they, they would really uh, invest massively in one sector, this will not make those areas very future-proofed. So this is another term I would lose, I use. I, I'm not using the resiliency one because resiliency is a for me, extremely negative is just your ability to, to respond to shock. Future-proofed is, I would say, a little bit more the way I would like cities to envisage uh, the new impact, their new impact assessment, whether they can manage to really um, be on track to, to, to build a, a better future, a future that is uh, um, indeed a really livable, livable place for, for, for all. 
In terms of specialization, what we have seen is that the, the, the cities that have been, uh, yeah, really trying to attract some businesses in some area now might be the one that are struggling the most because uh, they need to be uh, able to, to, to provide all services, all goods, uh, and it's much more now the, the new normal impose on every region to be able to provide uh, the minimum resources and to answer all needs for all. We have seen that uh, we, we were uh, having a big difficulties of supplying basic goods like the mask for during the crisis. So this is also a result of what we could call smart specialization. So smart specialization can be different things and it's very important to be uh, to agree on, on what it it can be because it's true that it's good to, to work on complementarities between the different regions, but it's not good if one region is too dependent on one sector. I think that's a very important point. Uh, Stefan, one of your research areas has been community-led local development. Do you think giving more power back to authorities can resolve this conundrum of, of uh, specialization versus being able to provide the bare minimum in a crisis situation like the pandemic? Um, I was just preparing answers directly to Claire and, and Claudio, but, but, but CLLD is obviously is a little bit my, my pet project and I'm, uh, I find this is an, an interesting concept because uh, it, it, uh, um, it, it's a bit of a, a niche thing, but I think it ha brings some interesting lessons and uh, uh, people tend still to view this uh, community-led local development framework as, as leader. So this is the rural development tool for some little uh, small projects in rural areas where they develop an, a, a brand for some cheese or something. That's really nice. Let's do them that. But I think uh, it has it, it become relevant now much more in, in, in Europe because of this uh, now that is implemented, or it's possible to implement in urban areas. And I think there are some interesting lessons because so far, and this closes a gap, this closes a gap, uh, uh, particularly in, in, in Eastern Europe uh, or in countries where there isn't um, yet any domestic uh, structure for for uh, community-led approaches in urban development. And I think that there it, can, uh, it, it, has, it has particularly uh, great benefits. Um, but I don't think it can be a solution for 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 uh, for everything. It 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 will it has its place, but it remains, I think, uh, uh, dependent on the specific context where you implement it uh, in. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Stefan. Um, now to shift gears a little bit, um, I want to go back to the points already uh, mentioned, which is this flexibility that was given to uh, to national governments during the pandemic. Now, often the discussion about simplification ends up in touting the importance of flexibility, which has its own pitfalls. Just to give you a quick anecdote, already we know that the Czech authorities initially were trying to spend 15% of their REACT EU emergency instrument allocation in sporting infrastructure. And though Prague has backtracked on this decision, the episode highlights, I think, the dangers of giving member states too much leeway in spending structural funds. Norman, the Commission introduced significant simplification, as you have said. Will this be enough? And on the other side, how do we increase fund take-up without loosening the strings attached too much? 
all, I would love to continue discussion with Claire, Stefan, and Claudio because uh, what you say is so important. And we are working on the future of smart, on the future of CLLDs, ITIs. We are working on all these concepts. We are mainstreaming them, and they are extremely important. But it's extremely important to get them right. Like you say, they have advantages, they have limitations. And so this is our policy. I mean, we are an EU budget, okay? So it's a taxpayer's money. So we always have to find the balance for our policy between a simple implementation, just giving uh, funding in, in the simplest possible conditions and still being accountable to the European Parliament. I'm sure uh, Corina will say that because we, we have to go to Cont Committee and the, the Court of Auditors. Is, so we have to find the balance. I do believe that good and correct quality level simplification does not possess the risk for accountability. And this is why we are working intensively. We have more than 80 simplification measures in our new regulatory framework, but we don't leave it there. We have established the simplification network already years ago because we realize that not enough of simplified costs are used. And this is a real benefit to all the beneficiaries to use more simplified cost options, more result-based schemes, which is similar to what little bit what RRF also is going to do with payments against results. But we are also having it uh, in our cohesion policy a lot, a lot in the ESF side. Now we are mainstreaming it for ERDF. And we are working with networks to make sure that it is done in a quality level, that we have necessary assurance also in place. Because in the end, you are right, it is about quality and it's about correct investment. So we have zero tolerance for fraud and corruption and we work on that um, we have control systems which also RRF will rely by the way a lot on our management and control systems so I don't I don't think that uh, with an RRF we will we will have a completely new world because in the end it will be the similar the same managing and control systems that will be dealing with RRF in member states and we have to progressively also trust and move to this fact that the national uh, and regional level authorities should be in charge and they should audit, they should do the management verifications on the quality level. This is what we've been working on with all these years in also building the capacity of these systems. And I think it pays off. Uh, hopefully it will be will be recognized also by the uh, Court of Auditors uh, when they produce the new error rates this year. Uh Thank you. Thank you for saying that. But I want to put this to, to Karina. Um, you know, there's a growing mistrust in politics in Central and Eastern Europe, um, and uh, which in, can endanger the European project, some would say. And this negatively reflects on the perception of the cohesion policy's impact. Meanwhile, as we've seen from the previous budgetary negotiations, net contributors to the budget and EU skeptics often argue that cohesion projects fuel corruption. So what can we do to convince citizens on the ground that cohesion policy is not a waste of resources and it's really changing lives? So uh, I really think it's a big problem and uh, I, I felt that uh, during the negotiations of the new programming period when I had to, to speak with uh, big beneficiaries and also with the big contributions, so uh, uh, contributors. Uh, it's very important to make this cohesion policy uh, more simplified. You know very well that we had uh, during 2015-2017 a high-level group of uh, simplification. Norman already mentioned that we came with 80 per, uh, simplification measures because it's very sad to see, uh, especially young people, that uh, they say 
they will not use cohesion policy anymore because it's too complicated and uh, too bureaucratic. It's very important. On the other hand, uh, uh, simplification uh, should have go uh, hand in hand with what you said, the flexibility that European Commission gave to the member states during the coronavirus, but these are measures on the on the shorter period about the deficit, about the uh, uh, possibility of changes uh, from one side from another, one fund from another, and giving to the health sector uh, priorities. I'm not sure that all the member states used all these flexibilities uh, in the last period, because we already uh, approved in the European Parliament all these uh, flexibility measures. Uh, since uh, March 2020, but uh, anyhow, uh, it's a it's a delicate balance. I am uh, now both in Cont Committee and in the Regi Committee, and uh, I know how hard it is to convince that we need to simplify uh, to make simplification. But this is not uh, 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 not uh, automatically going to the misuse of the funds. So that is very important to to underline. So, uh, and another problem that we are facing is gold plating uh, uh, practice, uh, practice made by many, many, many member states. So, they are putting a lot of uh, uh, regulations, much more complex than the European ones that we have. And I think it's uh, this uh, make uh, uh, life uh, much more complicated. So. Uh, I really think that we have to make a recommendation to the member states uh, to, to have a simplified option costs and so on, and uh, proportionate uh, controls, uh, uh, auditors uh, at the national and European level should work together and to detect uh, any, any, any fraud. Uh, I really think it's very important to gain trust in this policy, because when you look uh, at, at the index, is not one country more corrupt than, than other. And anyhow, uh, the European money uh, were recovered. But of course, uh, the aim is to have zero, zero tolerance uh, to fraud and uh, to invest. Sorry, I will just cut you off for a second there because you said a very important point, I think, uh, about, uh, you know, creating flexibility without uh, losing, losing the strings attached. And you've been talking about auditing. And I know, Claudia, uh, you have been on the other side of the auditing process as one of the final beneficiaries of cohesion policy. How do you see, see these concerns about uh, too much bureaucra bureaucracy and strings attached versus corruption? Yeah. Again, from the operator side, uh, I do not see the difference between what the EU actually, the European Commission is asking versus uh, the all the other strings attached by the national or the regional or the federal entities. I just see the total of it. And the total of it is the following. Um, we are measured by the fraction of the hour. We have to fill in timesheets and accounting for fractions of the hours of our activities to the project. That's fine. It's taxpayers' money. I understand that uh, we need to control how we spend my own money, by the way, so it's perfectly fine. The problem is that with the current process, you do not reduce uh, fraud. Actually, if I have to quote uh, Villa Itala, the director general of the OLAF, the anti-fraud uh, agency of the uh, EC, uh, in the recent years, there is a growing 
a growing trend in fraud, especially for sustainable and environmental related projects. So it is clear that the current system, just by measuring activity of the operators, is not good. We need to change that. How? I don't have the answer. If I had, I would be rich. But certainly two things. We should probably stop forcing operators into a fixed mode for seven years. It's called a waterfall approach. You know seven years beforehand what you are going to do in 2029. Now we've seen this is totally false. We do not know because the context changes. And uh, there is no intrinsic mechanism into uh, the, the, the project to adapt. So change system, measure less for complex tasks and focus more on the impact. Uh, I think that makes sense. Claire, how do you see this? Do you agree that you know, there, this is a made-up trade-off between flexibility and corruption, and can we really have it all? Oh, yes, I think we can definitely have it all. Uh, there is examples where it works. So first, I think one thing that uh, should really be done is uh, to apply the same rule than the Horizon Europe or the Horizon 2020. Every city that is using this money says that it's much more efficient, much more, much easier. And the process is, I don't think that there is more fraud with the Horizon uh, 2020 than uh, with the regional funds. And however, the process is very simple and uh, it's upfront money. It's really something that is, is possible for local authorities at least to be really part of. That's first thing. So there is programs that there, there are programs that are indeed working well. And uh, uh, that is, I think it's also much better for the European Commission. Otherwise, you will basically uh, fall apart in terms of con being doing controls all the time. And secondly, I think in terms of corruption, that I never really understood why we don't go onto a road of complete transparency. Uh, many cities and big cities everywhere in Europe are also have done, have started to do budgetary, uh, um, uh, sorry, participatory budgets uh, that are really also working very well. You give money to citizens to do projects and this is working. There is no loss of public money. The public money is not uh, badly used. Uh, projects are chosen by citizens' jury. So it completely increases the, the transparency and there is really ways to make sure that it is all visible. If you make it all visible, the corruption is much more complicated. Today, it's still a black box. And because it's a black box, then you cannot uh, really prevent any kind of corruptions, especially because we can see that there is a, uh, like a complete um, uh, infinite creativity that is possible uh, with VAT. I mean, you can do it whatsoever. However, if you completely open and there is no more black box, I think it's much more complicated. Mm. Stefan, how do you see that? You, you've been looking at local communities. Are, is participatory, participatory budgets and complete transparency a good way forward? Back to the simplification point first, sorry. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, because simplification is an interesting, uh, it's, it's, it's a buzzword and all simplification is great. I think what we don't, what we hardly ever look at is simplification for whom? So, so, and I feel that we're talking, there's, there's the European level, and then there's the beneficiary level, and then there's everything in between. And while it might then become much more simpler for the beneficiary and for the, on the ground, 
and simpler for the commission to deal with things it's it's, it's maybe the the levels in between that tend to uh, have more problems from for, 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 for from any measures that have been introduced and uh, we a few years ago we wrote a, a paper and we called it uh, is simplification simply a, fi a fiction so it was a bit of a pun or trying to play with words but but but, but because i think what we what we found is that any more often than than not managing authorities or program managers look at uh, um, would like stability rather than simplification it's the continuous change that that, that frustrates them so or, or the added uh, requirements and reporting and new strategies and new new elements in the policy to be, uh, are added to it and it's not so much anymore the, the more technical things that are being dealt with with flat rates and and these other more more, more practical approaches but it's just always new uh, tools new programs new element and and we're seeing this now with with uh, the introduction of the RF obviously as a major change obviously with wide-ranging consequences but we have the a just transition mechanism uh, all those separate funds, all the various directly managed instruments, we mentioned Horizon, Interreg, Interreg Europe, all these things. And if you then think of the potential beneficiary on the ground, that is how, how are they going to understand this? How are going to they, they understand this complexity? And do they really care about these, these or do they understand these buzzwords, smart specialization and, 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 and another acronym and another acronym? So I think that's, that's where, where we need some simplification, I would, I, I would think. I, I think you've you've also mentioned uh, a very important thing that there are so many new instruments available and some of them come in different forms and uh, with different conditions and all of this people fear may bring more paperwork. Now one of these new instruments is the Just Transition Fund that is supposed to help coal regions transition. Um, Corina, Romania just announced a coal phase out date. But uh, prior to that, you know, there have been concerns that maybe money will not be able to go to the regions that need it most to phase out coal. Um, how do you see this problem? Um, are we on the right track? Or, or is this really creating more burden for the territories that were already, uh, already struggling? Uh, I really think just transition fund it's a very good instrument. We started with uh, the pilot projects in uh, six countries: uh, uh, Poland, Germany, Czechia, Romania, Bulgaria, and Greece, Greece and Spain. Uh, pilot projects with uh, regions uh, in transition, and uh, now we have a, a dedicated uh, just transition fund to help. Uh, uh, to have these financial instruments uh, to provide support to the territories that face uh, serious socio-economic challenges from the transition towards uh, a climate-neutral continent. But I really think that uh, it's very important to have uh, strategies in place. And uh, I'm afraid that uh, in, um, in the case you mentioned, or maybe in other cases as well, but there is not uh, a clear strategy in place. It's just transition fund in Romania will cover the, almost 12% of all just transition uh, uh, fund. We talk about uh, um, one of the poorest uh, uh, region in the European Union, and it's very important to make alternatives, economic alter alternative from the life of the people, because if, if it's uh, the same question like. Uh, 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 our previous uh, colleague put uh, we do simplification for whom? For the last beneficiaries. We uh, make this transition fund for whom? For the people who are living there and uh, they have to have new jobs and uh, of course uh, these regions become greener and greener. 
So I really think it's a, it's a very important task, task, and I really think that European Commission should guide uh, some regions and countries because you know that, uh, especially in the case of Romania, we cannot work directly with, with the regions. So to, to guide uh, how to deal, because we have um, many successful projects, uh, as I said, starting from Germany and other countries, where um, regions who were very much carbonized uh, uh, now are uh, touristic, uh, touristic places or they created jobs, they made the hub of innovation. So there are so many ideas that sometimes uh, are missing uh, in uh, some member states, so I think it's really important to <clears throat> put in place uh, really the exchange of uh, good practices between member states, especially when it comes with these uh, regions in transition. Uh, well, Claire, you're an advocate for local authorities uh, in energy transition. How do you feel about the Commission's green indicators and the new funds? Um, well, I think that they are not transformative enough. It's like, uh, I, but I don't have the answer on that one. That's why also, uh, I, I mean, I, I took the easy road of saying that uh, indeed we should uh, have uh, those conversations uh, everywhere to define what is local wealth. Um, but uh, for the moment, I think the indicators are much more, uh, are still too sectoral, but it, it's not, I cannot say it's a, the it's a fault of anybody. It's just like uh, we are in a moving mode, and uh, we need now to have other kind of indicators that are able to to be um, looking at the transformation. Do we transform really the economy? So it's more about uh, dependency, energy, food. Uh, how how can we uh, manage to have the the the, the basic supply? Do we have uh, access to green areas? I mean, it, it's much more about um, redefining everything. <laughs> Claudio, uh, you've been talking a lot about indicators and the importance of how we measure things. When thinking about the green transition, uh, what are some of the pitfalls that you see in the current way that uh, You've, you've talked about already what, what the problem is with trying to just create essentially a list of uh, different indicators and go through them like check boxes. How does that reflect in the green transition? How do you see it? That's difficult because as uh, Claire just uh, said, um, um, static uh, absolute indicators are a thing of the past. They do not work because they cannot capture the speed at which things are changing, they do not capture uh, discontinuities in the way things are changing, like the pandemic uh, we, we just had. Um, so that's element number one. We definitely, I fully agree 100% with Claire's point, uh, we need a new class of indicators uh, and we need to form the policy makers, to make training to the policy makers to understand why we need and how to define new class of indicators. Huh? It's not just uh, technical thing. Second, on the green uh, and green aspect, uh, there is still, according to me, a lot of confusion. I, I am a digital uh, transformation expert, and I see that sometimes digital and green are either seen as two faces of the same coin, which is something I believe, or seen as a post. And it all depends on uh, 
how you consider this digital transformation. Do you take into account uh, how much energy the current data centers are using? How much energy Bitcoin uh, or artificial intelligence algorithms require to be trained today? And then you may, or, or, or electric cars, they are consuming a lot of, uh, they have a huge carbon footprint in their entire life cycle. But if you take that and you project as is into the future, you think that then everything digital, uh, this digital transformation uh, is not green. Whereas you should consider this photogram of the present and make estimations on how better we will become uh, in consuming less and less energy in uh, reducing more and more the footprint of developing digital. And then digital will be one of the major allies for uh, uh, the green transformation. So really we should stop considering one against the other they are two big important instruments and tools that we have we need to train every single of us we need to go back to school and learn new tools new language new understanding on how to use these new tools well uh, normans you will be essentially in charge of uh, trying to measure uh, all of these new climate ambitions but also digital ambitions of cohesion funds do you think the commission's indicators are up for the task yeah, we measure everything <laughs> of course not i mean as no we, we, we as we've heard it might be the, one of the problems sorry go ahead Ahead, I don't even know where to start because on indicators, I mean, honestly, I mean, all you say is true. We should start from the measure, measuring the baselines, the welfare, GDP. Is it correct to say that GDP is the only indicator for measuring? Of course not. But then what else is there? I mean, how, how to replace it with uh, how to add? I mean, it's, it's all, I, I would love to have this discussion with you and I would encourage you to raise this because we need to, to do it. And I absolutely agree that we need to come out of the static indicators the indicators also try to to they need to reflect the reality you're right but just discuss when you go to discuss with count committee and i will go next week uh, with corina uh, they attack us on durability where they say 20 years after you touch something an investment you cannot change anymore so you know talk about the flexibility there and um so there is a balance to be found and we need to measure outputs, results, impacts and everything. So we will try. We are trying to set them up. We are trying to put them in our programs. I'm glad you mentioned Just Transition Fund. This is a small fund, but it's very important. And for our Commissioner Ferreira, it is the most important fund and for us as well, because I think it genuinely tries to bring in that uh, local aspect and have a hands-on approach on helping a very concrete maybe small territory to go through this transition which is there it's very clear that for there are areas which really uh, depend on, on on the coal mining on lignite mining on the peat mining or you name it and it has to be phased out so they will have huge problems and this is why jtf is not about building new power plants and stuff like that it is about helping those territories to diversify to get through this with us and we are ready to work with them to make sure that this transition really doesn't impact on them Again, whether we have recipes for these territories, 
I don't know. We will see. We are working with consultants, with DG reform to make sure. But it's good that the basic uh, condition for this fund is territorial just transition plan. And we are working on those plans to make them territorial, to have them recipes, to guide us through this investment. And then the ju just transition fund and also the mechanism in a broader sense, I hope will achieve what it is meant to be because this is for once we have uh, the big policy objective green deal is accompanied by something which is territorially sensitive and which aims at leaving no one behind in reality so I, I really believe in that fund we are working hard with uh, all Norman, the actors you've mentioned the states, you've mentioned uh, technical assistance uh, uh, of trying to help guide territories through through in the implementation of just transition fund um, I wanted to ask Claire about this we've learned from the previous big financial crisis that one of the big things that national um, national authorities tended to do to tighten their national budgets is to essentially cut local capacity. And we are actually starting to see something very similar happen now in some countries in Europe, in Hungary, for instance, in particular, where there is less money for uh, local authorities. How do you see this? Uh, how can we strengthen capacity of local authorities? And what are some of the dangers and lessons learned from the previous financial crisis? So because we have not uh, so much time, indeed, we, we just published a guide. I will send it to you uh, to, to do your own, what we call a city facility. So indeed, it's a, it's a pilot we are doing now with DG Energy uh, to help local authorities to design their investment concept. And we so it, they, then each city, they get a grant for this time to think and expertise, but if expertise that can be national expertise or regional expertise to really uh, be able to transform their ideas and their project ideas into a financial plans, basically, because usually you only, I mean, you miss this, you, there is a gap there, you miss that link in between the idea and the concrete plan. What we have seen, because we have launched different uh, calls already, is that indeed it's not only, it's every kind of cities who are answering the call and asking for this grant to have the time to think. Uh, and, and this is very interesting to see that it's not only like small, we thought it would, would be for more for smaller cities that would not have the capacity, but indeed also big cities, even Paris wanted to apply and we just said, no, no, Paris, you need to find your, your money somewhere else. But it's, it's really something that uh, is very interesting because it, it means that there is such a need. So this is a model that can be replicated everywhere. Now we would just like to, to just uh, offer that model uh, everywhere. But to come back on the Just Transition Fund, I really think also for me that this is really an, a super hope uh, to, to see that program uh, that is uh, just launched because I, uh, the, the approach is so right. The, I hope we can learn a lot very quickly so that we can also embed the Just Transition Fund in, in, in the recovery uh, in general because I don't think the recovery will only be lasting for the next two years, unfortunately. And yeah, I really thank hope you, Claire. a lot. Uh, thank you, Claire. But as you mentioned, we're really short on time and I really want to get a couple of questions in. So uh, one question is coming from uh, Marine Godron, uh, the Council of European Municipalities and Regions. She uh, didn't mention who she's posing the question to, but uh, Stefan, I think this is a good one for you. Uh, she says that uh, with the precedent of the RRF and the general tendency of re-centralizing EU policies, how can we reposition the cohesion policy uh, at a local and regional level so it can be the closest to its citizens? I think that's a very good question. 
Yeah, I have no answer. <laughs> That's a question. <laughs> if you know that, then uh, um, I mean that maybe the the, the just transition fund is a good example. It's, it's a different thing, but I think it's 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 it shows maybe a trend. Hopefully, that we're going back to territorial interventions. Um, here you have a clear territorial focus, and 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 that's something I think we 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 can hopefully learn from, and hopefully this will be something that will be working. Um, but coming back to that uh, just briefly on the JTF, I think there, while it is a useful uh, initiative, I was wondering whether uh, it was useful to extend it to every member state in a way. Of course, there's political pressure to do so, but it loses focus. And uh, in some countries, that at least what we've, we've heard, uh, we've heard from the member states, it will be tricky to 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 implement it there, where there are already absorption issues of of funding. And suddenly, there's a big pot, relatively concentrated in a small area, and that might create some problems that uh, might not be intended. But generally, I think JTF or something that has. Um, uh, yeah, a territorial dimension could be one of those. And I've, I've been in touch with Marine before per email and uh, we'll probably get back <laughs> more in detail and discuss this bilaterally. Well, well, hopefully we'll, we'll hear the outcomes of those discussions as well. Well, sadly, uh, we're almost out of time. Just to conclude, I'll just turn to each of our panelists again to hear their closing remarks reflecting what has been discussed today. Very shortly, 20 seconds each. Normans, go ahead. <laughs> I think everything we discussed today shows that the cohesion policy is uh, the, the main investment policy in EU and we have future. I think in our DNA, it is about cooperation. It's about working together, finding solutions and funding the right priorities and bridging the thematic policy goals with the territorial uh, aspect. And this is what I think is our strength and we should work on that and simplify and improve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Normans. Uh, Corina, 20 seconds. Uh, thank you very much. The previous question you had from the audience is about how to make cohesion uh, policy much more closer to the citizens. And I think this is the aim of cohesion policy. And also communication needs a key. When I became commissioner, I was shocked to see that 80% of the European population that, uh, do not know when they go in the hospital or in a school that was done with European Union money. And now, uh, much more than ever, we should understand that the cohesion policy is not only useful, but it's uh, essential for the our existence of the European Union. When the cohesion policy is not heard, the European Thank Union you. is not heard. Thank you. Thank you, Corina. Claudio, what do you think? that we are on a digital economy, digital world that the European Commission is doing, is generating a lot of tools uh, to cope with that, uh, Digital Market Act, Digital Service Act, and all that part. So we need to focus on the single most important element of the value chain, people. We need to upskill people. We need all of us to get more acquainted and stop consuming social media, stop consuming the web, and start using it for a better good. Uh, thank you, thank you, Claudio. Claire? So maybe one thing on impact and impact assessment, maybe one tool that should be developed and one road to go in terms to, to change all the indicator uh, debate would be to go more into a climate footprint or climate budgeting. I think this is some, a way that you really embed much more into the public uh, spending, uh, the, this idea that you need to look at biodiversity and the carbon uh, impact and this, the last last word would be really 
lifelong cohesion policy. <laughs> that, that, that is very, that's a, those are good word, last words, but the last words are actually going to go to Stefan, your turn. Mm -hmm. That's some pressure. I think we should look at the term cohesion policy and where it comes from, and the term cohesion. And I think we should maybe uh, uh, move again towards a policy that is uh, a territorial policy and not a sectoral policy or set of sectoral policies implemented in a territorial way. Thank you. And sadly, that brings our event to a close. I want to thank all speakers today for this dynamic discussion. And of course, to all of you who tuned in today, just a reminder that you can find this event on Euractiv's YouTube channel as well. That's all from us. I'm Vlad Maximov. And uh, thank you for watching and have a wonderful Tuesday.